1 Timothy 6, 11 through 16. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, and whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to First Peter chapter 6. That's where we'll be. Um, I feel like this is a good time to pray. So let me pray for us and we'll get started. Uh, Father, I thank you for um, just being sovereign and in control over all the silliness um, thank you for my friends here. Thank you for our, our shared salvation that we have in our Lord Jesus, that, that you've known us since before the dawn of time, that you chose us, pursued us, loved us. Even when we hated you, Jesus, thank you for saving us by your blood, keeping us by your hand and feeding us with your word. Holy Spirit, would you just teach us from your word right now that you would teach us what it means to be men and women who fight the good fight of faith, Help us to see your truth more clearly and to live it more faithfully. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So question I want to ask you guys is, what is it that you are willing to fight for? What are you willing to fight for? What is the hill that you are willing to die on? Some would say my family, my marriage, or my loved ones. Others might say freedom. In our text today, we learn about the greatest fight that you and I are engaged in as Christians, what Paul calls the good fight of the faith. And this, this theme of the fight of the faith has been sort of this mega theme throughout our series in 1 Timothy, because Timothy is engaged in this fight of faith. He is called to protect the people from bad doctrine, to confront those false teachers, to strengthen the church uh, in good teaching and gospel culture and loving one another and building the church up with the proper blueprints so that it'll endure the attacks of the enemy. And this theme is not only all over 1 Timothy, it's all over the scriptures. In 2 Timothy, Paul says, be like a good soldier. In Hebrews 12, it says, we are at war against sin. In 1 Peter 2, it says there's a war waging within our souls. In Jude 3, it talks about the struggle, this common struggle and battle that we have of our faith. The reality is that every single one of us in this room is engaged in a spiritual war. And to properly engage in that war, you need to be a certain kind of person. Last week, Paul addressed the threat of false teachers. Uh, he did this for like the fifth time in the book. Uh, he was focused specifically on the kind of people that those teachers were with all their nefarious uh, motives and character. He says that they were puffed up with pride, that they were quarrelsome and covetous. Uh, they were more like men of the world 
than they were men of God. And so with that, I want to ask a question of specifically the men in this room. For the men in this room, are you more like the men of this world, or are you what the scriptures would call a man of God? Are you a man of God? Is your life marked by the pleasures of this world, or is it marked by the presence of God? Paul contrasts the false teachers that we talked about last week who were worldly men with the kind of man that Timothy should be in this text, a man of God. And that is the kind of men that our world desperately needs. This world needs men of God. And just to be clear, Paul's words can be applied uh, to men and women, generally speaking, but it does speak to men specifically here. He's addressing Timothy, who's a man, he's a pastor. His life is contrasted with the false teachers and pastors we saw from last week who were also men. And Paul calls Timothy to be different from them. He calls Timothy to not be a man of the world, but to be a man of God, which is only, that term man of God is only ever used for Timothy in the New Testament. And it's used like 70 times in the Old Testament and it always represents a man who represents God to the world. And so what we're going to go through does apply to every single one of us who are followers of Jesus, but I specifically want to address men on the front end of this sermon. And I think it's important that we talk about this because this topic is becoming increasingly unpopular to talk about. It's becoming increasingly unpopular to talk about manhood and masculinity and what it means to be a man. I think this stems from what, what we in our culture call toxic masculinity, which is actually a lack of biblical masculinity. And look, if you're, if, you're, if you're a woman, if you're a female, don't worry, like this isn't like man weekend at church, right? Like the parts that we talk about men actually apply to you also because you need to know that as women, you play a role in this. As a member of this church body and as our sisters and daughters, God has placed you here to encourage the men around you to act in line with what God calls us to as men of God. You also need to understand the high calling that God places upon men so that you know how men should approach you and how they should treat you and, and speak to you. Our main point is this, that this world needs godly men and all followers of Jesus, both men and women, are engaged in a spiritual war. We must fight the good fight of the faith, knowing that God is with us and for us and through us will be glorified. And so, again, this can be applied to men and women generally, but I do want to have a specific word for the men in the room. And so this is point number one, is the men that we need. Number one, the men we need. Look at verse 11. Paul says to Timothy, he says, as for you, again, he's contrasting Timothy with the guys we talked about last week. And so he says, as for you, Timothy, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. You guys know that the least likely group to attend a worship service, a Christian worship service, is, is men particularly men between the ages of 18 and 35, which is most of our congregation. And what's interesting about those numbers is that, is that many of the men who, who would uh, abstain from a worship service uh, would actually say that they do believe in God. They just don't consider it a priority practically in their lives. 
You'll hear men say to, uh, to, to the women in their family, like, hey, that, I feel like that that's might be for you, but it's not for me. And I think part of this is just the church's problem. Like churches tend to cater more to men and, and or sorry, to women and children. Uh, but part of it, I think the larger part is that men are by and large like proud and lazy and selfish. We're just like our first father, Adam, who abstained his responsibility towards his wife in the garden. And so we need men who are men of God, who are good and faithful men. Paul wants Timothy to be a good man. He calls him a man of God, a godly man. And so he says, as for you, O man of God, flee these things. We see the first clear charge for the battlefield here. He says, flee, flee. As we saw last week, some, some, some guys have been puffed up by pride. Others have been distracted by controversies. Others have fallen in love with the things of this world. But Paul says, you, man of God, flee these things. Webster defines fleeing, that word flee, as running rapidly from danger. It's this image we have that Timothy should be, as a man of God, the kind of man that runs away from the sins that mark the lives of those false teachers, like self-centeredness and envy and strife and division and materialism. We also saw this, see this in the life of Joseph. If you're going through our, uh, our reading plan, you saw this in the book of Genesis. Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers, he ends up working himself out of slavery uh, to manage Potiphar's house. Uh, and apparently he's a pretty good looking dude because Potiphar's wife uh, has her eye on him. She's chasing after him, trying to seduce him whenever her husband's out of the room. And Joseph keeps telling her, like, nope, not going to happen, right? I would never dishonor God and dishonor your husband like that. And so one day she sort of corners him, and he does like this, this Heisman move to get, her, uh, to get away from her and, and, and escape and go around her. And she ends up like ripping off his cloak. And so he's like, I'm just going to run away naked, right? I just got to get out of this place. Sin and temptation flee these things. Pride, strife, materialism, flee from these things. The thing is that us as men, we don't, we don't like being told what not to do, right? We don't like being told what not to do. We say things like, don't tread on me, get off my back. We don't like boundaries. We like to keep our options open. But man, that's, that's the lie that Adam and Eve bought. It literally leads to death. Every athlete knows that if you want to be great, you need to embrace limits in a sense. Like being a free agent is not going to get you very far. Missing practice won't get you very far. Every soldier knows this too. You miss basic training, you won't survive out there. And so Paul says, you got to flee some things. Flee to things as a man of God that will hinder your walk with God and instead pursue Christ's likeness. Look at the rest of verse 11. He says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. So here's the other call uh, or marking of the men that we need. You don't just flee some things, you pursue other things. Paul's second command sends the man of God in the opposite direction. You don't just flee from these things, but you run towards these other things. The man of God doesn't just run randomly when he flees from sin. No, he chases after Christ's likeness. Uh, 
He chases after Christ-centered righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. It's possible to leave behind a life of worldliness, but then to only find yourself just consumed with pride and self-righteousness, which is just another kind of worldliness. Jerry Bridges puts it this way. He says, too many of us focus on the outward structure of character and conduct without taking the time to build the inward foundation of devotion to God. This often results in a cold morality or legalism, or even worse, self-righteousness and spiritual pride. You don't just flee from these things. You got to pursue the good things. You can't walk in opposite directions at the same time. You can't pursue both sin and godliness at the same time. I remember uh, some time ago getting caught up in in a riptide uh, at the beach one summer. And I was like yards out away from the beach, and I didn't even realize uh, that I was like floating on my back um, like a goober, right? And it just, I didn't realize like how much the, the riptide had just like caught me and had me drifting off away. I thought once I realized it, I started swimming. I thought I was swimming in one direction, but this tide kept pulling me. Uh, so I ended up like a mile away from my friends. You're either moving in the right direction or, or you're not. And so the first thing we do is flee, but the second is we pursue. He says, pursue righteousness. Remember the words of Jesus who said, blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. This has to do with integrity, uprightness, conforming your life to the the word of God. And then he says, pursue godliness. This is one, one of Paul's favorite words in the letter. He mentions it several times. It's about having your entire life revolve around God. It's about God-centered beliefs. It's about God-driven behavior. It's a life that revolves around God and all that you are and all that you do. It's saturating your mind and your heart and your life with God first and foremost. Living a life of worship that displays the character and beauty of God to the people around us. And then he says, faith, pursue faith. That word is meant to convey trust. In other words, as a man of God, pursue a deeper trust in God. When you struggle and wrestle as the war is going on around you, grow in faith. This is where we remember that sometimes the most difficult times in our lives are the ones that our faith grows the deepest. When our faith is most fortified and strengthened. He then says, love, pursue love. This is not just love towards God, but love towards others too. Love your neighbor, love your coworker, love your husband, your wife, your kids, your enemy, the marginalized, those you would normally ignore, love them. Then he says steadfastness. That word, pursue steadfastness, means endurance and perseverance. This is when you press on and never give up. You never relent. Even if the finish line seems like it's 
so far away. You just say, I'm never going to give up. Some of you guys have been fighting the same spiritual battles for a long time. Paul would say, don't give up. Hebrews 3 says, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Pursue patience in the middle of those difficult circumstances. Never give up. And finally, he says, you pursue gentleness. Gentleness. Gentleness isn't about having an absence of strength. It's about having a humble strength. It's being tender and patient, long-suffering, self-controlled when you're dealing with other people. The world needs men of God like this who flee from sin and pursue Christ-likeness. Men who don't make excuses, but actually take up glad responsibility for the things that God has called us to. Take glad responsibility for the people under their care. Most men are engaged in what we might call trivial things. Worldly things that'll just fade. Worldly things that don't last, that don't really matter. But man, there's a world around us that is broken and hurting and needs real men, godly men to show up. There are real problems to solve, real people to help and save, real injustices to fight. And so my invitation to the men in the room is, will you show up? Will you show up? Men, you need to make a commitment to live for the things of God. That's where real life is found. Dallas Willard says that we are either blessing or cursing the people around us. You need to be blessing the people around you by being who God has called you to be, fully you, fully present as a man of God. No one else is around the same people as you are. No one else was born in this time and place like you were. You need to show up for those people around you. Don't trade real accomplishments like, like growing in character and the kingdom of God. Don't trade those things for fake accomplishments like, like status and comfort and leisure. We need men and women of God who step up to the plate and go to bat for the kingdom, who flee from sin and run hard after Jesus. And so that's the men that we need. Number two in the text, we see the mentality that we need. The mentality that we need. Now, the mentality that we all need is first a wartime mentality. We see this in verse 12 when Paul says, fight the good fight of the faith. A good fight is a fight that's worth waging. It's a hill worth dying on. It's a struggle that's worth struggling. When you're fighting for eternal life, for joy and peace, for hope and strength, that's the good fight. Not just for you, but for those around you. 
when you fight to spread the gospel so that others can escape the fires of hell and have everlasting joy and life in Christ, that's a good fight worth fighting. I think of the first time that I went to one of the local CrossFit gyms. Um, I don't have a membership. I think they're too expensive. I know the whole pitch, right? Like you should invest into your health, into your life, right? But um, I'm not sold by it. Uh, my neighbor, though, my neighbor, he invited me along on one of those uh, bring a friend days uh, that the gym had, which I thought was cool at first. I'm like, oh, cool. Like my neighbor, he considers me a friend, right? Um, <clears throat> but then I'm like in the middle of this workout on the row machine and in the circuit for like the 10th time. And I'm like, dude, this is how you treat your friends, <laughs> right? And they should call it like invite your or bring your arch nemesis day. But I look back at that and just after the fact, and, and I'm thinking like, man, that was actually a pretty good workout. I think it actually did good for me, right? I've got some health goals for the year that I've shared with you guys. And so I'm like trying to mimic those exercises I did back then, like back at home. It's a good fight that's worth fighting. It hurts, but it's worth it. A good fight of the faith, a wartime mentality. The Bible addresses this head on, this wartime mentality. It tells us that in addition to the effects of sin on our world and how our world is broken, there are also spiritual forces at play behind the scenes. Our biggest problem, the Bible says, is not so much what's out there, but what's in here. Not a physical war, but a spiritual one. That doesn't mean that we diminish the physical or look past it, because sometimes there are physical problems with our minds that can be treated with medication, like mental health issues. But sometimes there's a spiritual issue at play. And that's why Paul in Ephesians tells us that it's not primarily flesh and blood that we wrestle with, but with cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil. I think one of the reasons that some of us don't believe in this, uh, in this wartime mentality the reason we don't believe in the devil or personal evil is because uh, when we think of the devil, we get sort of like this pop culture image of him in our head, like the dude with red skin and a pointy beard and a trident in his hand and a tail, right? And for the record, I don't believe in that image of the devil either. But others might deny the existence of the devil because of what C.S. Lewis coined when he said that of when he talked about our, our, our chronological snobbery. That's when you kind of have this, this ongoing working assumption that any idea from the past must be a primitive myth simply on the fact that it's old. I love the way that Chesterton addressed this when he said that centuries don't make the truth go away. There's an old saying coined by Charles Baudelaire, this famous French poet from the 19th century, where he said, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. While some ideas are just fads that come and go, the words of scripture are eternal and they're timeless. And the scriptures, they reveal to us that there is a spiritual realm at play, a spiritual battle at play in the background. There are demonic influences that are real and at play. This is why the scriptures remind us that we have an enemy who prowls around like a lion seeking to devour us. And so we need this wartime mentality to fight the good fight of the faith. But we also need an eternal mindset. We need an eternal mindset. Verse 12 continues. 
When Paul says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Interesting verse here. Paul tells Timothy to take hold of eternal life. Now, how do you do that? Right? Timothy, he already has eternal life in Jesus. So what does it mean to take hold of eternal life? Here's what he means. It's, it's if you are in Christian, if you are a Christian, you are in Christ, right? You are in Christ. That means you have Christ's life, you have his power, but you still struggle to experience the fullness of what it means to be united to him on this side of death. One day, we will all experience this reality of what it means to be in Christ fully and completely. We'll know what it feels like to be free from sin, to be untainted by evil and brokenness, and experiencing the fullness of joy that Christ bought for us. But when Paul says to take hold of eternal life, what he's saying is remember the gospel and cling to it. Remember that God foreknew you before the foundations of the world. Remember that you were elected and predestined to be adopted into his family. Remember that he has called you by name, that you belong to him. You're a citizen of his kingdom. You are his child, a child of God, an heir to the throne. You are no longer fighting against God. Now God is fighting for you. So cling to that. Cling, hold fast to eternal life. Take hold of it. The battle you fight and wage war against is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers seeking to thwart your faith. And so take hold of the eternal life to which you've been called. The battle's not a, the battle we're in is not a war to possess things or possess lands, but it's to never lose our very souls. It's a battle for godliness. As you enter the ring, you know that you have to fight yourself first. That's where every good battle of the faith is first fought. It's the fight we need to be engaging in. It's the fight we fight before we get in arguments, before we're tempted by sin, before we engage in sin. Fight yourself first with that eternal mindset. The other mentality we need to have is what we might call a quorum deo mentality. A quorum deo mentality. Quorum deo is a Latin phrase that literally means before the face of God or to live in the presence of God. We read about this in verses 13 and 14 where Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. And so Paul says, hey, look, I charge you in the presence of God. Remember that God is present. He's everywhere. He's present. And I want you to live as though you're always living before him. This quorum deo mentality, that phrase, has been used by Christians as a reminder that all of life is about God and that we must live our whole lives to glorify him. And because God is omnipresent, in other words, he's always present, every moment of our life takes place under God's watchful gaze. 
And so as we fight this good fight of the faith, remember that God who is your life is with you in this life. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. So you fight in his presence. You fight with his help. The creator and sustainer of all things is with you and for you. He says, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. In other words, live your life in view of Jesus's life of faithfulness. When Jesus's life was on the line, and when he stood before Pontius Pilate, knowing that, that the trial he was on was a sham trial and that he would be sent to the cross, they asked him if he was truly the son of God, which would be considered blasphemy because in their world belief, uh, in their worldview, only Caesar, the emperor, could be considered a son of God. And so Jesus, he could have bailed at that point. He could have been like, nope. This is getting too hard. This is getting too crazy, too painful, too much. But instead, he confessed who he really is. He showed up. He went to bat for us. He confessed who he is as a son of God, as a king like David. And what did that cost him? His life. This is the Savior who died for you and me. What other hope do you need? What do you have to fear in the good fight of the faith? What is his charge that he says uh, to Timothy in the presence of God and of Jesus? He says in verse 14, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. The commandment here, that word commandment, refers to the whole law of Christ that Christians pledge themselves to in baptism, which is summarized in loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. So while we need to follow the rules of engagement in the fight of faith, we won't have to engage them forever. We know that Jesus is coming back. One day, at the proper time, Jesus will return. The personal, visible, triumphant return of Jesus is as certain as the moment that he first came to walk this earth. We don't know when it is. That's why he says at the proper time. It's a mystery to us. But he will return. What does that tell us? It tells us that this, this battle we're on, this mission we're on, is not a suicide mission. We're not doomed to fail. Our king has promised to come again for that final battle when evil, sin, and death will be laid in their graves and be destroyed forever. And this leads us to our last and final point, point number three, which is the Messiah that we need. The battle you fight is a battle that has been already won. Jesus, the Messiah, he lived for you. He died for you. He rose in victory over evil, sin, and death for you. Verse 15 and 16 says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, 
whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Do you feel weak or discouraged in this fight of the faith? If you do, look up. Look up to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is with you. He is for you. He is the only sovereign one. His rule is universal. Nothing exists outside of his dominion. Your suffering is not sovereign. Your doubt is not sovereign. Cancer is not sovereign. Divorce is not sovereign. Death is not sovereign. Strife is not sovereign. Sin is not sovereign. Despair is not sovereign. The only true sovereign is the one true God who rules and reigns over all things, the Lord Jesus Christ. He rules over it all, and his reign is unstoppable. Without end, he is the immortal one, the text says, the only one who exists above history. Time is in his hand. There is no timeline that he is bound to. He is from everlasting to everlasting, the creator and the one who holds it all. He dwells in unapproachable light. His holiness is so pure and glorious that it's blinding. And no one has ever seen or can ever see. In other words, his beauty and splendor is greater than anyone could ever dream or imagine. He is totally transcendent, utterly other than us and the pledges of this world. To him be glory and dominion forever. He possesses all power, and he deserves all praise. This is our God. This is our Savior. And so let me ask you, what will you do with him? What will you do with him in this fight he has you in? Make excuses, give up, or will you turn to the glorious one for strength, the one who helps us and enables us, the one who keeps us to the very end? Men and women, brothers and sisters, let us look up unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no dot com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.